And that really broke us. It, I honestly think it breaks us till this day because that was the first time their perfect daughter decided to not obey her parents, to not trust them. But it feels so wrong disobeying people that you love so much and they love you so much. I, you, you just don't know how to make yourself happy and how to make your parents happy at the same time. But unfortunately for them, they also raised a daughter who had so much fire and passion and like my heart knew exactly what I wanted. But at that age, I hadn't yet trusted myself enough to truly disobey my parents. So when I decided to just like do it, it was scary for me too. Cause I, I mean, I didn't know how it was going to end up and like, Things weren't as I thought, and I went through a long struggle period, but you know what? I look back on that now, and I'm like, what a beautiful struggle it was because it helped build me into exactly who I am today. That was Cassie Ho, the founder and creator of two multi-million dollar companies, one of which she started only a handful of years ago. And this is Are You Ready with Joanne Molinaro. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Are You Ready with Joanne Molinaro. This week, I'd like to introduce you to Cassie Ho, the founder and creator of not one, but two powerhouse brands, Blogilates and Popflex, both of which were born out of Cassie's stint as a certified Pilates instructor back in the late 2000s. But what started out as a way to pay the bills soon turned into a community numbering in the tens of millions and now two eight-figure businesses. Cassie has always been a leader. I think she was born that way. But the thing I love about Cassie is that she completely upends the stereotype that often adheres to women in a position of power, that we must be unapproachable aloof, even a bit of a bully, and that it is a business no-no to wear our hearts on our sleeves. This was definitely the message I received, explicitly and implicitly, when I was trying to make partner at the law firm. But Cassie, she doesn't buy into that, not at all. She is openly emotional about the triumphs and the losses, and she has leaned into that quality without a trace of artifice. In so doing, she has proven that success does not require you to be who you aren't. Success will follow those who lead, even with their hearts. So, without further ado, let's get into it. Thank you so much for coming by. Of course, I'm so excited. Yeah, I'm so excited (laughs) to have you here. How's it going? It's going good. I I just, I love spending time with you because I feel like every time we get together, we just like learn so much and we laugh so much. I know we definitely laugh a lot. I'm going to try and keep the, my laughter at least to a minimum. Cause I've noticed when I've done these podcasts, I laugh at everything everyone says, and then nobody can hear anything. That <laughs> so I'm going to try really hard to like, so it's not because you're not as funny as you always are. It's just, I'm trying to give you the audio space to say all of the charming, witty, wonderful things that you're going to say. Oh, so I'm so excited that you're here. And I knew 
I wanted to share your story with my community as soon as you told me your story over vegan sushi at Makin. I was not really aware of your story. I had heard of you, you know, the Blogilates. And I was like, oh yeah, I know, I know the person named Blogilates. And of course we met at that YouTube summit where you were apparently kicking everybody's ass with your Pilates routine. (laughs) I did not take it. (laughs) But it, you know, kind of disguised this much more inspiring story. And I remember walking away from that dinner being like, I'm so inspired. And I just feel like, oh my God, I I just need to take, take charge of my life in the way that Cassie did. And of all the people that I've met over the past year, I was like, I have so many questions for her, mostly selfish ones for myself. Uh huh. that I just want to know. But I thought it would be cool to start actually at the very beginning. Where did you grow up and you know how many siblings did you have and you know, kind of what did you do when you were a little girl? Oh my gosh. Well, before I even get into that, I just have to let everybody know that when we were at the YouTube Creator Summit, the only person I was seeking out to say hi to was you. Oh my God. Because I found you during the pandemic with you know your amazing emotional stories and beautiful cinematography. And then I, I, did we follow each other back at some point? I'm sure we did. Yeah. And you were just so wonderful. And you said, let's get together. And a lot of times when people say that they don't actually do it, but the following week, I think we texted and then we got something on the books and meeting you and Anthony along with Sam, my husband at Mock and Sushi was so fun. And that conversation left me like It made my heart feel light and airy for the rest of the weekend. And uh, yeah, so thank you for that. Oh, thank you. So everyone who's listening, if you take nothing else away from this conversation, find those people who will actually text you back and meet you for vegan sushi. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And also go to (laughs) Makin. So good. Literally. Absolutely. So yeah, where, where did you grow up? I mean, is it from the SoCal area that you are? Yeah, I grew up in Southern California in Woodland Hills. And my parents are Vietnamese Chinese immigrants. They grew up in Vietnam and left during the 70s. My mom was a boat person, didn't eat or drink anything for seven days. Her boat got pirated, almost died, you know, lived on a refugee camp. And basically, my parents came from a very hard place running away from war. And they eventually met here in the United States. And then I was born in California. Okay. So there was a lot in that one sentence. It was, yes. (laughs) So let's start at the very beginning. What is a boat person? So it's a person who is fleeing Vietnam during the Vietnam War in the 70s. And pretty much my mom told me she didn't see a future for herself Mm. where Vietnam was going with the communist government and everything. And she wanted to create a future for her future children. She, She was young. She didn't have a husband. She didn't have a boyfriend at this time. Was she a teenager? Um, Yeah, I think she was probably like 19 or something Mm -hmm. like that. And so she left her mother, her father, her two brothers in Vietnam and just fled the country. And she said she would rather die than not have a chance of a brighter future for herself and her future children. And she took her younger brother with her. And yeah, so that's a lot of people did that. And a lot of people also died Mm -hmm. during that time trying to escape. So she left behind her parents and her two older brothers? Younger. She was the oldest. Oldest. But she did bring one brother with her. Yeah, because he didn't want her to leave. Oh my gosh. Oh, that must have been very difficult for her. Yeah. Yeah. But it's crazy to think, you know, her, her determination and her fire 
of wanting to do better is probably a lot of the reason why I am the way I am today. Mm. When did you discover this story about your mom? Oh, I mean, she always told the story really? ever since we were kids. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, you guys can t- you guys need to give me everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> everything I say you need to do because I went through the boats and all that stuff oh, for you. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I know the story well. So she, how did she get to the United States then? So after the refugee camp in Malaysia, she wasn't able to get to the U.S., so she had to go to Canada first. And there was a family there that was taking in, I guess, refugees, taking care of of them. And eventually through relatives or something, someone said, my mom should meet up with my dad. And then they became boyfriend and girlfriend when they met up in San Jose, California. And then they eventually got married and that's how he got her over here. And how did your, and where was your father born? He was born in Vietnam as well. Okay. Yeah. But they didn't know each other in Vietnam. And was his sojourn to Canada and or America similar to your mother's? No, very different. So my mom escaped the country on a boat and my dad was able to actually get on a plane and fly over for education. So very different. And what is what was your father studying? He was studying engineering, and I'll tell you this fact because it'll probably end up going back to it later. He wanted to be a doctor, and his mom told him, you're too stupid, you can't be a doctor. And then so he ended up going into engineering because he was good at Oh, yes, because only adults go into engineering. (laughs) (laughs) And he tells me, you know, he had to have a Vietnamese and English dictionary on the table at the same time when he's like reading a physics book to try to understand what he's even comprehending, you know, when he's going to college in the United States, learning a brand new language. Now, did your mother join him in school or did they get married instantly and start having babies? What what would happen when they met? No. So I think after they got married, oh, okay. I remember now. My mom was in college when she was in Vietnam, but she ever never actually got to finish her education. And so when she met my dad, she immediately went to work. Dad was also working and also taking night classes to get his master's and everything. Wow. And what kind of work did they do? So my mom, well, she did a lot of different things. So she... When she was in Canada, she was working in a factory, like with her hands. And then when she got to the U.S., she ended up working in a bakery and making cakes. But it's not as glamorous as it sounds. (laughs) It's like it was for like Vons and Safeway. So, Um, yeah. And then she, I mean, her working schedule was very difficult. I remember hearing her waking up at three or four in the morning and like opening the door, closing the door, the engine turning on her leaving. And it was like that throughout my childhood. Oh, so it's literally like time to make the donuts where the donut guy like turns on the light. Mm-hmm. Nobody else is awake. The whole neighborhood is subsumed in darkness. And yeah. yeah. And she had to have that schedule too, because she had to pick us up at 2 PM when school was over because uh-huh. dad was going to still be at work. Right. Yeah. So it's always been, they've always worked both of them so hard. And what was your father doing at the time? So he started out when he was first here having to be a busboy and really like working like both of them from the ground up. But he ended up being an engineer. So he did end up getting there. But uh, he always wanted me to be a doctor too. So that, well, I think so that he could fulfill his dreams in one way or another. Yeah. And also prove, well, if I'm not smart enough, my progeny is smart enough. (laughs) Right, right, right. So how many siblings did you have? One little sister, she's four and a half years younger than me. And what was it like growing up in Woodland Hills? 
You know, I did not really have a sense of what it meant to be Vietnamese or Asian, and I was actually ashamed of it. I never saw people who looked like me, and I wanted to have blonde hair and blue eyes. And the thing is, I didn't actually realize any of this until I moved up to the Bay Area. And I remember attending my very first assembly and having a culture shock because everyone had black hair and tan skin, and I felt weird about it. And then I realized, oh, I've only feel weird about this because I've never been around so many people like myself. When did you move to the Bay Area? In the middle fifth grade. Okay, and mm-hmm. and so your family moved to the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my dad like. Silicon Valley, that whole thing. I see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for the first five years of your life, you lived here in Woodland Hills. And for those of you who don't know, Woodland Hills is a, it's, you know, a suburb kind of place of LA. It's right off of Ventura. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't realize that because right now it's a fairly diverse town. I know many Korean Americans live there for sure. There's pretty thriving because it's like right by Northridge and things mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. But I guess growing up, it was not as diverse. No, no, not where I was. And the only type of diversity that we got was on the weekends when my parents would go grocery shopping in Chinatown right. or all the way down in Garden Grove for Garden Grove for Vietnamese groceries. Mm. Yeah. So you said that you were sort of ashamed or embarrassed of, I guess, your ethnicity and your background. How did that manifest in your relationship with your parents? You know, it's interesting because I feel so bad for it now, but like I wouldn't want my parents to speak in front of my friends, you know, didn't want to ever speak Vietnamese in front of people. But weirdly enough too, my mom always told me to not, not to tell the teacher or anyone else at school that I knew a second language because she was afraid that I would be put in ESL classes, mm-hmm. English as a second language. And so it, it was almost like, from one side, like wanting to be English first and wanting to be so American so that I wouldn't be held back. But at the same time, it also became me being ashamed of my culture and really not embracing it until middle school when I met other Vietnamese girls and boys and began wearing my costume and, and just like feeling really proud of it. But before that, I didn't want to have anything to do with being Vietnamese. Mm. So you said that you knew a second language. Is that the first language that you started speaking at home? It must have been Vietnamese and English at the same time or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I totally understand what you mean. My mother used to do the same thing. I mean, she wouldn't never tell me, don't tell people you don't speak Korean, Mm -hmm. but she emphasize the American and the English speaking Mm -hmm. at the cost of the Korean and the Korean speaking, obviously, since like Korean has basically leaked out of me, like, you know, a sieve, I barely remember any of it. But at the time I spoke it very, very well. Uh And she was very anxious about me, again, being placed you know, behind in school Mm. because, you know, the Korean or, or her inability to speak English and her, you know, sort Mm -hmm. of thinking Mm -hmm. as well as she needed to would somehow put me at a disadvantage at school. And I think when you're growing up, when you're four five, six, seven, eight years old, uh, you know, kids are simple. We sort of interpret that as, oh, I guess this is something to be embarrassed about. Mm -hmm. Like maybe this is something that I should be ashamed of. I should be more proud of the fact that I did well in English, you know, and got an A on my spelling test Mm -hmm. than perhaps the fact that I can speak Korean with my grandma. And so it's sort of this strange thing that we internalize over time. But it sounds like at around 10 years old, some of that got a little bit you know, flipped upside down when you moved to the Bay Area? 
Yeah, it did. And one of my best friends from middle school, she and I ended up becoming the president and vice president of the VSA, which is the Vietnamese Student Association. And I carried that club all throughout high school. And it was really like, it gave me such a sense of cultural pride that I never had before. And it was really cool. And it, it, it is all about being surrounded by other people like you. And it's not, you know, your parents telling you like, hey, you should wear this, or this is cool, you should eat this. It's like, no, like we as young people like it ourselves and we made it our own. Well, I, I think it's very telling that you said that I carried this club. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> No, but really, I, I know. Okay, that does sound like crazy. No, but. no, I actually think it sounds very consistent. <laughs> because when I in high school, the VSA when I joined, I think I had like I don't know, like seven people, and like they weren't doing anything. People just like kind of met up and like ah, for thirty minutes after school, and then just went home after that. Then I was like going in, I was like, you know, there's like Vietnamese dance competitions, there's parades, like we need to like win stuff. And so when I came in. I started like designing these costumes for our dance, like our dance competitions. And then my mom would go back to Vietnam every year and I'd give her to the designs. And then she would have them made, brought back, all the girls would fundraise and, and boys, we would fundraise. And then that's how we would get our costumes. And then we compete with the more intense like Vietnamese schools in San Jose because I was in Union City. And so we were kind of like this other school coming in and like beat all the competition. And it was like really a prideful time. <laughs> I had a lot of fun. Oh, I think that's amazing. And I think it also is incredible that you were designing clothes at the age of what, like 10, 11? Uh, well, this is high school now. Mm -hmm. So, you know, 16. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I've always, I mean, I always designed my Halloween costumes. I just have always loved dressing up. Where did you get that from? Like, where did you learn how to even say, like, I want this costume, so I'm going to sit down and sketch it out and figure out how to make it. Like, that's not something that I learned growing up. <laughs> like, where did you learn that? So I, I have always loved drawing. It all starts from there, and I don't know how a human formulates a passion truly, but it's always been there with me from as far as back as I can remember, I would carry around a sketchbook and a pencil. And I remember being in elementary school and the teacher doing this project and saying, you can only take five things with you to a desert island. What would you take? And the first two things I wrote down was like blank paper and a pencil. Mm -hmm. And I think I went like sharpener eraser or something like that. Like I wasn't even thinking about food supply. So I'm telling you like, I just enjoy it. And then I started designing for my Barbies. And then I just kept these notebooks and as a kid, I always wanted to be like a red carpet, carpet fashion designer or a bridal designer. And I don't know what it is. I just really enjoy dressing the body of the female body. Mm -hmm. I think it's really fun. And your mom was cooperative. I mean, would take these designs that you mm -hmm. created and come back with this beautiful product. Yeah. Yeah. She was very like, she was very supportive of that, these fun side projects. But when it came to me wanting it to be my actual career, that's when things got really, really sticky. So when you were younger, all fun and games, mm -hmm. let's support her creative endeavors, right, right, be good right. parents. Yeah. But yeah, then it, when it turns into a career, it, it becomes a little worrisome to them, which mm. is very understandable. And, and I definitely want to get to that. But 
let's stay with the sort of high school time. Yeah. These costumes that you're creating for these mm-hmm. dance competitions. Well, how did you even know about dance competitions? Is that something endemic to the Vietnamese American culture? So growing up in the Bay Area, my parents would always take us to the New Year's, the Tut or New Year's Festival. And then I would just like see people doing things. And I was like, I want to do that. So then you just go on the internet and you just figure it out. Oh. You call people, you email people, and you just figure it out. And you said that the the club consisted of about seven people, and you kind of stormed in and said, "We're going to take the nation with these <laughs> competitions and our costumes." And then I and then I, I ran for president. I was like, "Vote for me!" And then they voted for me. And then by the end of senior year, I think our club had like forty or fifty people. And this wasn't like a Vietnamese forward school. It was mostly like. Filipinos and Chinese people. So Vietnamese was very like a small set. So were there even 40 Vietnamese American students? I mean, there were definitely some more that I couldn't get into the club. (laughs) I got a lot of Vietnamese Americans from our school to be in the club. Wow. Yeah. And what was it that you saw in that club that had so much value to you that you decided this needs to be a bigger community? Huh. That's a good question. I don't know. I guess maybe at this time I was just exploring my cultural identity and then just wanted to get deeper into it in different ways. And I've always loved dancing. I've always loved fashion. And so for me, I guess expressing my love for the culture came through performance and and art, I suppose. Yeah, but those are things that you could have done inside of your house, in your room, you know, with just your little sister. Uh I mean, there was something that I think appeal to you in numbers. I want to build a community Mm. around this. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. this is what I know I'm good at. Here are my assets. Here are my talents. And these are the things that I can contribute to this. But it sounds to me that you saw seven and you're like, no, I see potential for a lot more than seven. I mean, can you think of even at that time or even looking back, Mm -hmm. like, was there something that stuck out to you as particularly valuable in having a community around the things that were growing important to you? Hmm. You know, what's so funny is that I haven't talked about the VSA for like, I feel like 20 years. Oh, <laughs> And so you really like have dug into something here like, oh, building community. Wait, this makes sense. Yes, it does. I mean, designing clothes, wait, this makes sense. From a third person perspective, everything you're saying, it's like, wow, the she was laying the groundwork for this when she was a teenager. Interesting. Yeah, I have never thought about it. Wow. You know what? I, I think the building of the community was important, especially because it was a place that I didn't quite understand but was interested in, which I guess if we step back is also how fitness started. Like I wanted something, but didn't know much about it. And I taught myself how to become really good at it Mm -hmm. and eventually built a whole career out of it. But, you know, I think it also, also was helpful that my best friend was there with me and we were doing it together. And yeah, maybe it was just like, I wanted other people like me to be doing something together, mm. accomplishing something together. Exploring identity, exploring, yeah. you know, cultural heritage together. I mean, I think there, it can be simple as, well, it's just more fun when you do it with your best friend, when you do it with a bunch of people that you like who share the same vision or the same goal or even just the same heritage as you. I mean, that's certainly something and it's just more fun. But I do think there is something special about the fact that you're like, I'm going to come in here, I'm going to make some costumes, we're going to win all the dance competitions. I'm going to run for president. 
president and we're going to grow this thing. And it, it's just like, that's not me. Like when I was in high school and junior high, yeah, I joined clubs. Uh-huh. But that was, <laughs> I was the participant. <laughs> you know, I was never like, let's, let's take this all the way to the end. I wanted to speak to that sort of competitive spirit as mm. well. Like we're going to win all the dance competitions. Was that something that you kind of cultivated or was that something that was there from the very beginning? You always wanted to win. Just as a person? Yeah. So this is really interesting, and Sam and I talk about this all the time, because sometimes I'll tell them, oh, no, I'm not competitive. But, <laughs> but I think we broke it down last week. So I hate being competitive in sports, and but I am extremely competitive in business. And I'm going to go back and tell you why. So I have this really weird thing where... I I think I'm like psychologically messed up when it comes to tennis. So my dad used to coach me at the age of six years old, all the way until I made it into varsity, the varsity tennis team when I was a freshman in high school. And so I was pretty good, but I hated tennis so much because all I remember from that was my dad yelling at me for not acing the serve, for the ball going into the net, for the ball being too high. And like, I just hated practice and I hated it throughout high school as well, even though I was good because my coach would just start yelling at me for losing or whatever. And so for me, sports was so like win or lose, win or lose. And there's no flexibility and there's no really like failing. There's just win or lose. And I really hate that. And so when it comes to sports, like now I really don't even like playing tennis with Sam or even pickleball, because if I hit the ball wrong, I will start yelling at myself. Mm -hmm. So in sports, I have this like weird thing where I'd rather just hit the ball really terribly so that it's almost like I would rather sabotage myself. Okay, really weird. But now we're gonna switch over to business and other things. Yeah, I'm extremely competitive. If I see someone doing something pretty much that I like or that I want, I will use that as a model for how to get there. And I find it inspirational in a sense. I think my competitiveness is what keeps me going forward. Mm. That in addition to, of course, I really love what I do. Unlike tennis, I, I hate tennis, but I'll stay up so late drawing or dealing with product development issues or like whatever, because I just love it. And I really feel like I'm doing the thing that I was born to do. And I'm just like, I just want to do it forever until I die. Mm. I think one of the things that people forget is people who are competitive, there's at least something inside of them that makes them believe that they can win, Mm. you know, that they can be number one, you know, however cheesy that sounds, you're number one, but there's at least something inside of you that gives you the audacity to hope Mm -hmm. that you can prevail, that you can be on the mountaintop and to have that sort of confidence at such a young age, you know, when you're still in junior high and high school, I think is pretty remarkable. But I also hear what you're saying is that you also kind of discover that there's sort of a danger as well, a sort of toxicity Mm -hmm. that can adhere to that level of competitiveness when, for whatever reason, you start to internalize the sort of, well, how I hit the ball Mm -hmm. translates into how valuable I am as a person, how worthy I am as a person. Mm -hmm. How do you guard against that from happening in the other aspects of your life that you are kind of gung-ho competitive, you know, those things that you still love to do, you know, as much as you hate tennis, you love staying up all night and designing and, you know, building a business. 
There's so much more flexibility and freedom in business than there is in sports. In sports, you hit the ball wrong that like your opponent then wins, you know, Mm -hmm. like it's so cut and dry and clear. There are rules. Whereas in business, there are no rules. Like I can push boundaries. I make my own rules. I don't have to adhere to any rules and I can fail as much as I want on my journey but that doesn't mean I lose the game. And so I just have a lot of fun doing whatever I want. And that's why I feel like even when problems arise, I embrace them because it's, it forces me to be creative. And I love that so much. Mm -hmm. So far, the formula for success, at least for Cassie, seems pretty apparent. Pride in who you are, community to support and inspire you, working with a best friend to make sure it's always fun, passion for what you're actually doing, and a healthy dose of competitive drive. But as I like to do, I wanted to peel back the onion even more. I wanted to dig into the parts of Cassie's story that might not be as easy to talk about as dance competitions and running for president. As we get into it, I'm reminded once more that love is powerful, but also can get well, complicated. I want to go back to something that you alluded to with your father, and I I guess it seems like he and perhaps even your mother put some pressure on you to go into medical school. Mm -hmm. When did that start? Mm -hmm. So I remember being in high school and, of course, taking all these AP classes and all of that. Like, I was a great daughter and a great student, and I had never rebelled against them. But around the same time when my mom – so also a little bit more background. My mom was extremely controlling over my dating and love life, and my dad extremely controlling over my academic life. And so my mom made up these rules, which – Funny enough, before I got married to Sam, this is like many, many years later, I was like, remember that time when you told me I couldn't have a boyfriend until second year of college and I actually listened to you? And she was like, no, I don't remember that role. Like, that's how obedient I was, okay? (laughs) Anyway, anyway, I forgot what the question was. I just, yeah. (laughs) So when did they start kind of nudging you towards medical school? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty much in high school. They wanted me to be a doctor and they wanted my sister to be a lawyer. That was going to be like the perfect thing for the Ho family. And this was also when I told them, I want to be a fashion designer. And they were like, absolutely not. My dad specifically said, you will not make money, you won't be successful, and you won't have friends. And Jesus. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that really scared me. So then I decided to just go into medicine because I had good grades in biology and physics and everything. Like, fine, I'll just do it. And the whole time he's telling me, oh, and you can always like design on the side or you know what? You can get into cute scrubs. Like you'll, you'll make it work. You know, my heart is dying thinking about that. But I went anyway and ended up majoring in biology with the hollowest heart, the darkest hole in my body ever. And I knew I just couldn't do this anymore. But at the time in college, I didn't know how to disobey my parents because I had been so obedient. I think a lot of people have this rebellious phase when they're like 13, (laughs) but I never had that. And so it was really hard trying to figure out how to tell my parents, you know, I don't want to do this. I want to follow my own heart, but I also can't guarantee you that I am going to be successful, but I need to be able to try. And what ended up happening was junior year, the last class that I needed to take 
before the MCAT, it was organic chemistry. And at this point, like I'm just mentally dying inside, emotionally dying inside. And they're telling me, no, you must continue, must continue. And then I decided to just sabotage myself and just ruin the entire timeline. And I just dropped out of organic chemistry. And I knew that was going to set me back like a whole year. And that really broke us. It, I honestly think it breaks us till this day because that was the first time their perfect daughter decided to not obey her parents, to not trust them. And yeah, to this day, like this whole trust thing is still an issue. I think that what you just said is exactly the the whole crux of this relationship with your parents that you're talking about. It's tremendous trust Mm -hmm. that you had in your parents that they always knew best, better than you Mm -hmm. about what you wanted, what you needed. And, you know, when I talk to a lot of people who have similar dynamics with their parents, and this I think is very typical of immigrant parents and their children who are here in the United States, and it could be for a host of reasons. It could be the language barrier. It could be, you know, the fact that your parents were refugees for a while or because they had very different lifestyles and different dreams. But I think at the end of the day, for a lot of kids, it's about, well, I want my parents to be proud of me. I want them to approve of me. I know that was always the sword of Damocles that was hanging over me. Like, mm-hmm. I can't get a C in math, even if it's the highest level math that the school offers. Mm-hmm. I cannot yeah. because my parents will be disappointed in me. Not because I can't get a C because it'll look bad on my report card mm-hmm. or because it'll ruin my GPA or my chances of getting college. Or, yeah, that was those were there, but they were so secondary to the primary concern that I I need to make sure my parents are okay and that they still love me. Mm. So when you're talking about this trust that you had in your parents, I want to understand because it, it, it almost sounds like it was by rote, like it was automatic. I automatically obey mm. and trust what my parents do. Mm. But was there ever a time, especially when you start realizing that I'm uncomfortable with these choices that my parents have made for my future, where you start investigating like, why am I obeying them so automatically? Should I continue to trust their vision for me? Yeah. And I mean, the first time I disobeyed my mom, it was really scary. And so, you know, that rule about not having a boyfriend until second year of college, I had a secret boyfriend in high school (laughs) and she found out and then she forced me to break up with him on the phone while she was listening. And so like after that, I was like, okay, I'm not going to go through that again. That was incredibly humiliating and damaging. And so in college, that was the second time that I decided to disobey. And this time it was my dad. And he is a really tough, tough man. So that was really hard. Yeah. When you describe that you went into college obeying your parents Mm -hmm. and and being a biology major with at least this sort of idea that you would do what they said and become a doctor eventually, you describe it as sort of hollow and Mm -hmm. almost like emotionally dying. Like, can you be more specific about what that feels like? And I, and I say this because I know there's so many people who listen, literally there was a young woman that I met once who was like, my parents want me to go to medical school Mm -hmm. and I'm in medical school, but I know it's not right for me and Mm -hmm. I don't know what to do. And she just starts crying, you know? And it's like, what, what exactly do you mean when you say you felt hollow? Like literally at the age of 17 and 18, those are really big feelings to have. Yeah. I literally thought about killing myself. Yeah. I'm like tearing up now because it was, 
when you are so passionate about something and your heart is just telling you this is the right way to go, but it feels so wrong disobeying people that you love so much and they love you so much, I, you, you just don't know how to make yourself happy and how to make your parents happy at the same time. As you can see, this is still like an unresolved issue I have with my parents. And people always ask me like, they must be proud of you now, but it doesn't matter, you know, how many subscribers I have, how much money I have, how, how, what things are in target. It doesn't matter. I think, I honestly think they're still hurt that I didn't take their, I didn't trust them with my future. Yeah. So anyway, hollow feels like, hollow feels like you have nothing left to live for. It hollow feels like everything is dark inside and you're aimless and you're stagnant and falling backwards. Yeah. That's what it feels like. I think that's really telling given that there are some people who would say, oh, how could you feel aimless when your parents were telling you exactly where to aim yourself? Mm -hmm. They've already laid out the path for you. My mom used to say this all the time. She's like, I got the path for you. But, and I'm also going to tell you when you get off the path yeah, so yeah, that yeah, you yeah. get back on it. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's my job as your mom is to get you back on that path, right? right? And so in some ways they think that they're loving you the best yeah. by telling you, here's the path, here's where it ends. I'm going to be standing next to you the whole time to make sure you stay exactly on this path that I've already marked out for you. And yet this sort of tragic irony is that you've probably never felt as aimless and directionless in your life before as when your parents are trying to tell you this is the direction that you actually need to go. Yeah. And it, I mean, it even got to a point where my dad was calling my professors and asking them how I was doing. Like, like this is the level of control they wanted to have over me. And like, yes, I, I understand now that I'm older that they wanted to secure a financially secure future for me because they did escape a war-torn country, had nothing, worked for a dollar and fifty an hour bussing tables. Like I get it. But unfortunately for them, they also raised a daughter who had so much fire and passion and like my heart knew exactly what I wanted, but at that age, I hadn't yet trusted myself enough mm. to truly disobey my parents. So when I decided to just like do it, it was scary for me too. Cause I, I mean, I didn't know how it was going to end up. And like in the following years after college, things weren't as I thought. And I went through a long struggle period, but you know what? I look back on that now and I'm like, what a beautiful struggle it was because it helped build me into exactly who I am today. And like even my parents, even my parents really trying to push away the whole fashion design thing, that also built my character. And so I'm thankful for everything. The exactly, I'm thankful for the exact way I was brought up, everything that has happened to me because it's given me so much to fight for. Well, and also, like you said, really crystallize what it is you want. Yeah. You're like, yeah. I know this is what I want because people are trying so hard to prevent me from getting it. And it would have been easier for some people to just say, fine, I give up. Like, I'm, I'm not going to do this anymore. It's so much easier. The path of least resistance is just to do what 
I mean, to go into medical school, it's easier to go to medical school, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you know, and, and we, we laugh at it because obviously getting into medical school is really, really, really hard. hard. Yeah. <laughs> but it sounds like in, in your case, it would have been the easier option because your parents would have been, you know, clapping for you and cheering you on. Mm-hmm. And this decision that you made to essentially sabotage that future for yourself as sort of the first step, you know, the first gauntlet being like, hey guys, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm assuming that whole confrontation, if you will, with your parents was difficult. Oh yeah. And it took years of buildup because it started freshman year when I knew ex- this is not where I want to be. And that's kind of also when I started looking for other ways to find happiness, which is when I went on Craigslist and found a Pilates job down the street and kind of just, I felt so happy anytime I went to class and started teaching. Of course, this is after getting certified. And then my parents would also be like, why are you wasting your time teaching? You need to like cancel that. You don't need that and go back to studying physics. And I'm just so glad there's all these moments where I just didn't listen to them. And it's all these little things that ended up you know, being the start of my YouTube channel. Then the YouTube channel ended up bringing me back to fashion. Like none of this was planned. This was all really just following my heart because that's all I really knew what Mm, to trust. That's so beautiful. Recently, I had a friend staying with me, a 20-something-year-old, and I mentioned to her that I was planning on having blogilates on my podcast, and she immediately perked up. Oh my God, all the cool girls in junior high would do her workouts together, and I always wanted to be one of the cool girls. Well, what kind of workouts were these? As you'll soon hear, Cassie was a certified Pilates instructor, and she started her channel when Pilates was in its heyday. I actually did a Pilates workout this morning in my living room, only 18 minutes and, according to my Garmin, burned a whopping 120 calories. It's hard stuff, and I definitely would not have been motivated to do it without a good instructor. It made me appreciate, once more, Cassie's unique gift for inspiring people to do hard things with a smile. I want to go back to you going on Craigslist. Yeah. I think this is like so random. There's, there's a lot of Craigslist yeah. stories. That's okay. That was the kind of generation that we grew up in. Yeah. But like, so where, where did the Pilates interest kind of float into your life? I mean, we know you hate tennis and yeah. it sounds like organized sports is a no-no for you. We know that we're not into orgo and science. <laughs> Uh, For a lot of reasons, although it sounds like you have an aptitude for it. Where did Pilates sort of surface? Okay, so I was 15 years old, sophomore year of high school, and I was just browsing online and I saw that there, well, okay, there's there's a couple stories here. Let me go back. (laughs) I was watching an infomercial on the weekend and I kept being fed these Mari Windsor Pilates infomercials. And I thought the women just look so graceful and beautiful. And I was like, I want to be like them. So I asked my parents to buy me the DVD and they didn't want to, but eventually I got them to do it. And then I would just do it in my bedroom like every night. And I thought it was really cool because this was the first time I actually enjoyed physical movement. And it was no longer about winning and losing. It was just me being better than who I was yesterday. So that for me at 15 years old was when I first started enjoying fitness, even though I was 
physical beginning at the age of six with tennis, I hated it the whole time. Now, at the same time, I was on the internet and I was just searching for different things I could be doing. And I found that there was the Miss Teen Chinatown pageant. And I was like, I want to do the Miss Teen Chinatown pageant. And of course, since we talked about the whole Vietnamese thing, I was also really interested in my Chinese side. I'm half Vietnamese and half Chinese. And I was like, cool, I want to do this. And so I thought maybe I should, you know, get ready for the evening gown portion by doing Pilates and all this kind of stuff. And so that also was like a part of me getting ready for the pageant. So that's how Pilates got into my wow. life. <laughs> and so at 19 or is it 19 that you discovered this Craigslist option? Yeah. For... So freshman year of college, however old yeah, you're so supposed 18. to be at mm-hmm. that time, I was just teaching my friends Pilates in the dorm. Just, they were like, what are you doing? Can you teach us? I'm like, okay, cool. We'll do abs together. And then I was just like browsing online for other things I could do after school and on the weekends. And I saw that there was an opening for a Pilates position and I wasn't even certified. I just had been doing it since I was 15 and I was like, cool, I'll just do it. I go in for the audition and then the owner of the gym is like, oh, that was really, really great. Can I see your cert? And I was like, yeah, about that. I don't have one. <laughs> and she's like, huh, okay. Why don't like, I, I'll pay for your certification and like we work something out so that I could eventually teach for her small studio. And that's how it started. And it started out with like, you know, I would teach like two women at a time and then three. And then eventually I auditioned for 24 hour fitness where now there's like a room of 30 or 40 women or people, mostly women. That's why I keep saying that. And I remember putting on that microphone for the first time and literally my body was shaking. My, my voice was shaking, but it was one of the most incredible feelings because you walk into class, it doesn't matter what happened at school that day, but now you are just like in charge of making all these 30, 40 people happy for that one hour. And it made me so happy. And so Pilates became such a rock in my life. And yeah, that's when I started teaching group fitness was, was in college. Wow. Mm-hmm. So you're going to school on your way, presumably to medical school, yeah. although that may be not so much at a certain point. You're also teaching classes on the side and Pilates. When did you find time to start a YouTube channel and all this? So that didn't happen until after I graduated. Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, okay, let's, let's stop there. We, yeah. So you graduated. Did you graduate with a biology degree then? I did. Honors in biology oh, too. Wow. <laughs> oh, notwithstanding the sabotage of that orgo class. <laughs> yeah. So, so I, so yeah, I, I graduated with honors in bio anyway, but I didn't apply to any type of anything that had to do with that. In fact, I tried applying to fashion bio opportunities because it was the closest thing I could get to fashion without having a design degree. But yeah, it was 2009. And at this time, Sam and I had been dating for a year. We met in 2008. He was actually my finance tutor. I had a business, what do you call it? What do you call it? Not a second major, like a a minor, a minor. Uh Yeah, I had a business minor and that's how I met him. And he knew me as the annoying girl who kept raising her hand and he actually (laughs) didn't like me. But then I got a B minus on a finance test and then went into whatever, tutoring. And he was like, why are you here? And then we started flirting (laughs) and everything was great after that, kind of. (laughs) But anyway, 2009, I, I was applying to these fashion jobs, most of them on the East Coast. And then I find out that, one of them is accepting me for this training opportunity. And so I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to be moving to the East Coast soon. And all my students were like, what are we going to do without you? You're the only person who teaches pop Pilates. And I'm like, okay, so 
why don't I film a 10 minute video of me doing some abs, arms, butt, everything. And then I'll put it up on this website called YouTube and you guys just watch it when, when I leave. And so it really was only meant for 40 people. And then when I left, I didn't really look at the video, but the next time I saw it, there were like thousands of views and hundreds of comments, not from my students, Wow, from other people asking like, hey, this is cool. Can you do like a butt version? Can you do like a lower ab version? And that's how Blogilates started. Wow. And how did you come up with the name Blogilates? Okay. So I was trying to be a blogger at the time, writing, and then of course Pilates. So therefore Blogilates. Uh, and when you say you're trying to be a blogger, what does that mean? It means I was like writing a, 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 on a blog about my life and hoping someone would read it. Yeah. And it was, eventually people did want to read it yeah. and they wanted to know a lot more about everything. And it eventually became like a public diary for me where it wasn't just about what I was eating and what I bought at Trader Joe's that day, but like also talking a lot about like even my, my parents' story and how I went through that. And it was really, a in the beginning, a very safe place for me to share my feelings. And then later, as Blogilates got bigger and bigger, there was... So many people reading it that I had to start becoming more vanilla and not really telling the whole story because it would offend so many people. Mm. And I just felt like there was a period of my life where I was afraid to say anything. And that was also the period of my life when business followers, subscribers, everything just started getting lower or smaller and me not feeling like myself anymore because I was afraid of offending people. Mm. But yeah, that's another chapter of my life. <laughs> we, I want to get to that chapter. But before yeah. we leave this chapter, it sounds like you were, like you said, writing in this public diary, if mm -hmm. you will, giving classes, doing YouTube videos, in fact, on this nascent site called YouTube.com. <laughs> uh, but, you know, what role do you think, if any, did that writing that you were doing, the blogging that you were doing, and sort of transcribing your journey, which sounds like was at times a fractious journey, you know, dealing with your parents and, and sort of pursuing what you knew to be true in your heart, even if everyone around you was telling you no, no, no. Did that writing, and in particular the, the community, however small it was in the beginning that sort of built around it, did that play any role in finding confidence, finding courage to continue down this path that you started when you were a freshman? Yeah, the writing for me has been so therapeutic, and it's been extremely therapeutic to get the feedback yeah. back as well. And you end up you know, meeting people who might be on the same journey or have thoughts to share with you because I didn't really know who to talk to about this. And so it was a nice place for me to just like figure out my feelings. And so I used to blog once a day, like every day. And then as you know, the business has grown, I've not been able to do that. But anytime that I am able to blog, like I'm able to send over lots of traffic to it. I do think that what happened is that Instagram happened and then the caption space is what began replacing my blog. So it's not like I stopped writing. I just now have a major character limit when I write. And that's when I kind of noticed blog traffic kind of switching over to Instagram. Mm. So I, I'm sure like if we look at statistics with other bloggers, the same thing might've happened. But for me, it's been interesting because when Instagram became really big, it was never the pictures that carried my page. It was always the caption and the stories that I shared. Which speaks to community. Mm -hmm. I mean, it speaks to just 
an incredibly engaged number of people who, like you said, are interested in who you are, what you're doing. What did you get at Trader Joe's? Like, how many times did you brush your teeth? It's <laughs> a little creepy, but also, again, speaks to the strength of that community. I remember when I started writing on the internet, uh-huh. and I didn't call it blogging at the time because I, it wasn't like a blog, you know, but it was on Tumblr. And oh, yeah. yeah, I would write a lot. And I wrote like you every day, Mm -hmm. if not two or three times Mm -hmm. a day. Mm -hmm. And I definitely think that it was that process. And, you know, maybe a couple hundred, you know, to a thousand people would see my writing on any given day, right? And it was something about that process of putting myself out there in this sort of vulnerable way, but also the safety of knowing, well, it's not like a million people. It's just a, you know, a couple hundred to a thousand who are reading my thoughts that I think in some ways propelled me to do things that I had previously been too afraid to do, you know, the most important thing being leaving my Mm ex-husband. And so I was writing out my whole separation and divorce process on Tumblr with this very small, tight-knit community. And I, I don't know if I would be here if I hadn't done that. And it's such a strange, weird thing. I mean, I grew up you know, maybe a little bit earlier than you. We didn't have internet growing up. I wasn't able to Google things like costumes and you know, <laughs> things like that. You know, Craigslist was an actual, like, didn't exist. I had classifieds ads and things like that. Oh, and I use the classifieds okay, ads good. too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yellow Pages, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I know Yellow Pages is a big part of your story. But I think that, you know, so for some people, this idea of allowing people to see into your lives mm-hmm. via the internet may feel like, oh, it's just, it's like this cheap thrill thing. But no, it, it, at least in my case, it was so powerful to me knowing that there were humans on the other side of the screen that were partaking in my story in however a small way that, again, allowed me to say, I think... I, I think there's something out there that is more important than being safe in my security, you know, and being comfortable. Like sometimes you have to be a little bit uncomfortable in order to sort of go for it. I want to talk now about you making the move. Ultimately, did you go to the East Coast in pursuit of that job opportunity? I did. So I thought I was heading into this glamorous buying job and I was going to prove my parents wrong and all this kind of stuff. So I ended up moving to the East Coast and and it was the exact opposite. It was such a toxic environment, one. Secondly, I don't think I w- would have ever thrived in any type of corporate environment ever. I don't know how to work that ladder because with my type of attitude, I guess it just offends a lot of people. I guess I step on a lot of people's toes because my attitude is if something can be done better, we should just do it. And so I come in as like this, you know, young, nobody, nothing. And I'm all telling them like, Hey, we should like buy into booty shorts. We should do this This is what I'm seeing at the gym. And they're like, pretty much stay in your place. That's not what you're hired to do. You're hired to do the analysis. So just do that. And I got slapped back into place so many times. And I ended up just crying before work every day, hating my life and being like, what am I doing? Like, I I don't know what I'm doing, but 
again, what saves me during this whole time is that I'm still teaching Pilates now at the Boston sports clubs. I eventually get hired by Equinox, which to me at that time, I was like, I've made it in Pilates. That's all I ever need. This is amazing. <laughs> and that made me happy. That was one of the only times I wasn't like just upset at myself and disappointed in myself. But yeah, the environment was terrible. And uh, like, <laughs> you know, what's really interesting is that it was terrible, but it also taught me exactly how I would never want to run my own company. Mm. And so again, I just feel like everything that happens to me really does happen for a reason. But yeah, it was the exact opposite of what I thought it was going to be. So at this time, you're thinking to yourself, well, when I own my own company, I'm never going to run it like this. And the difference is, if it were me, I would have been like, I'm never going to own my own company. I should just go to med school. <laughs> Like, what the hell was I thinking? My parents were right. Like, Well, this whole time, my parents are like, so when are you going to grad school? Like, when are you going to just finish that organic chemistry class? Like, and I'm just, you know, throughout this whole time, like, I just have less and less and less communication with my parents. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you never second guess this decision to kind of deviate off the parent path and, and go into fashion? You never thought maybe I should go back and do Mm -hmm. what they want? No, because I just... Science, look, science and math and all of that, they they do play a pretty pivotal role in the way I think about product design now, but I don't want to be in medicine and I would be a terrible doctor, just like how I was a terrible whatever, what was I? Allocation analyst. <laughs> That's what you start out as when you're on your way to being a buyer. And I was just like, not cut out for it. And I, I, and look, I, I faint at the sight of drawing my own blood me too. <laughs> so I don't think anyone would want me anywhere near <laughs> any patients ever. Yeah. But no, the heart, the heart wanted fashion and yeah, there are a million bumps along the road, but all of it just makes the story juicier, I guess. Yeah. Most of us, we don't exactly love our jobs, but we don't hate them either. Or maybe we suppress how much we actually dislike our jobs because we feel we can't really do anything about it. For a long time, I used to get this horrible feeling in my chest, like someone was squeezing my ribs together every time my husband would turn onto the street my office was on to drop me off at work. Sometimes I even have nightmares about that feeling, like I can't breathe. But for 17 years, I stuck it out and I ignored that feeling because I thought it was normal. As you'll hear, Cassie basically didn't care whether it was normal for her to hate her first fashion job. She decided it just wasn't good enough for her. So you recently posted on threads, I think a couple weeks ago, that you did wake up every morning before Mm -hmm. work and you would cry Mm -hmm. and nobody should be in that situation. How did you exit that situation? Okay. So I'm going to backtrack a little bit. So 2009, also when I started the YouTube channel from 2008 to 2009, I was developing a Pilates bag for myself because I couldn't find a cute one to carry my CDs, my yoga mat, my water bottle, my towel. And so I 
got together some scrap fabrics and made a bag and my students liked it. So I was like, okay, I'll get more fabric and make some more. And then eventually, oh, this is where the yellow pages comes in. I had to literally flip through the yellow pages to find like a sewing company. I didn't even know, I didn't know anything. Found a sewing company that was really like the basement of a laundromat in Oakland, California. And like, this guy was like, fine, I'll help you, I guess. Like, and so <laughs> he, he made a bag for me. And I think I had like, maybe three designs and I did around a hundred units of each. So I really only had 300, but I decided to ship out a few to like women's health, shape magazine, fitness magazine. And that was 2009. Anyway, now fast forward to Boston and I'm sitting at my desk, literally like eight months into the job, like hating myself. And my sister sends me a text message and it's a picture of her finger pointing to something that looks like my bag and something that looks like a magazine. I'm like, what? So I asked to take an early lunch and I drive over to Target and I open up Shape Magazine. I flip through so fast and I can't find anything and I do it slower the second time. And then I literally see my no name, nothing, nobody bag in a literal magazine. And I just start crying. And I was like, this is my sign. I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to find a manufacturer. We're going to do this real. We're going to go big. And I would rather fail so hard knowing I tried everything than to not try at all. And so that was me taking the next leap of faith into the next chapter of my life. Wow. I can feel like the emotion, however residual it is, you know, especially since this happened many, many years ago and it happened to you at a different time in your life and all of those things. But hearing you describe, you know, tearing through that magazine and then having to go through it a second time. That is such a remarkable detail because I think a lot of people can relate to that. I remember when I got my first acceptance letter from Oberlin, the conservatory, I couldn't get into it fast enough. I ended up ripping my acceptance oh, letter in yes. half. Oh, no. <laughs> you know, my, my mom had to tape it up oh, <laughs> you know, because of that excitement. So I can totally relate to that. But I want to go back to this detail that you mentioned that you literally had to go through the yellow pages mm -hmm. and find some person. It reminds me so much of this story about Stephanie Meyer. She's the author of you know the best-selling book called Twilight and that whole series, right? She's not an author. She had no idea what she was doing. She'd never written anything in her life before. She was a mother, a brand new mom, just trying to you know not make her baby cry. And she writes this book. And so she just goes on Google and just like, Google's like, How, what do I do now? <laughs> like I have this yeah. book, like, what do I do now? <laughs> you know, and she just mails out a copy of her manuscript to 10 of the top, you know, lit agents that she was just able to Google and then mm -hmm. the rest is history. And so your story of just like kind of, you know, going down the yellow pages, again, like where did you find the confidence to be like, I don't know what I'm doing. I have no idea what I'm supposed to do next, but I'm just going to go to the yellow pages and randomly call this person that there's no Yelp reviews. There's nothing. I don't know anything about this person and just keep going. How is it that you weren't asking yourself, well, what if this person Fs it up? What if I end up wasting a lot of money? I'm 300 units. I'm assuming is, is a good chunk of your savings. Mm -hmm. What if it turns out bad? What if the bag that I get is completely useless? And even if I like it, what if nobody likes it? And I ordered 300 bags that nobody's going to use. Like, how did these questions not stop you in your tracks? I guess it's just the excitement of what could be. And, you know, also when you're young, you don't really think about all the things that could go wrong. You just do it and think it's going to be fine. 
And so, yeah, I remember looking through the yellow pages. I don't even know what word I was looking for, but I was like, I think sewing is a good one. And I just like looked up all the things that said sewing in front of it. I, I just called all of them until I got one. It was like this Chinese guy in Oakland who was just willing to help me out. I think he was like, I don't know what she's doing, but that's fine. Like, I guess. But um, yeah, I, I remember. And when you got that first one back, did you like it? No, it, I, I, I didn't know. I, I literally didn't know what I was doing. So I drew a picture of the bag and it was supposed to have pockets on both sides, but because I drew like a diagonal picture, it only showed pocket on one side. And so I assumed that he knew I wanted this to be symmetrical and it came back with one pocket. I was like, no, that's wrong. So I had to pay for a second sample. So these are things that I just like didn't know, but like today I teach my design team, like, Hey, you guys need to be louder and more clear when we're talking to the factory. Like they don't know that we want that, like put a picture, draw it again and like make it very clear. And so all of these things taught me, it was my design school. My whole life has been (laughs) prepping me for what I'm doing now. And when you got that first one back and you said, yeah, no, there's supposed to be a second pocket here. Again, being me, like just knowing at that age and like not knowing what I'm doing, I would have been like, oh, I guess it's okay with one pocket. <laughs> like, why not? Like, I just thought it's fine. Like, what made you again be like, no, sorry, sir, you need to do this again? <laughs> oh, well, that's just how I am. I'm so particular when it comes to everything. And it, if I want what I want, like there's no changing it Mm. unless like you have a really good reason and you prove me wrong. Like, fine, we'll have that discussion. But like, I just need it to be symmetrical. So we got to have two pockets. So what happened to the 300 units minus the ones that you send out to the magazines? Yeah. So, I mean, it was really hard to sell. I set up my own website. Oh my God. I love this already. Why? Because I just assumed you'd be like, and they sold out in one minute. No, 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 no. It was sitting in my parents' garage and I was trying to sell these bags for like $150. And like this, yoga bags are not a thing that people need. Okay. I, and it's like secret. Yeah. And it's like, you can get a $17 one at Target. It's just that I didn't want that one. So I thought a lot of people wanted a super glamorous gold chain, like vegan leather bow bag for 150, which like no one really wanted that. And so, yeah, I, I made my own website on this like website called highwire.com. I don't even know if it's still out there, but it was like the cheaper version of what you would think of as a Shopify back in the day. And I put up there and like, no, nothing happened. And this was like, Blogilates like wasn't even a thing. And so, so you didn't have your no, millions of, YouTube I didn't have anything. I had nothing. I, I was just like, it was called Oh, gorgeous yoga bags, which is now the parent company of our, like all our businesses. Aww. But yeah, it was really hard. I remember Sam's mom like bought one cause she wanted to be nice. And then like my friends found out from high school and they like bought one to be nice. But like, these weren't like real customers. And I can't even remember how I got Oh, I remember now. I think I was just playing around with SEO or something like that. And we got like one sale from this woman in New York. She bought a red Beverly Bowtie yoga bag. Her name was Lindsay Anvik. And I was like, are you kidding me? Someone in New York bought my nobody bag. And I went on Facebook and friended her. Are you serious? <laughs> We're actually oh. still friends. <laughs> That is the highlight of this episode. I don't think you can beat that. Oh my God. That's so gassy. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So that, that was the first one. And, and like, it was just really stale, slow inventory for a really long time. And uh, what else happened? Okay. So I remember thinking, man, these bags aren't selling. I'm just going to stick one in the back of my Pilates video. Like maybe somebody will see it. So 
if you look at the very first blog Lottie's video, there is a cream colored bow bag in the back. And I thought that was, that, that was going to do it. This is how we're going to sell the bags. It still didn't sell, but people started watching the videos. And so, oh, gorgeous yoga bags kind of was just like in the background the whole time. And Blogilates is what ended up taking off. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. So I'm assuming you did end up selling all 300 at, at a certain Yeah. Point. It just took forever. A really long time. It took forever. Yeah. I just, was there ever a time where again, you were second guessing any of the decisions that led you to that point? Like maybe I'm not a salesperson. Maybe I don't know what I'm doing here. Maybe I don't know how to design a bag and I should just stop. I think I was just more like, what can I do better? What, what is the next thing I can design? Mm -hmm. So I, I guess that is interesting. I've never like second guessed myself as a designer. I've just been very confident that like, I'm, I'm, I'm really good at what I do and I can figure it out, figure it out. And I think what gave me even more confidence was as the Blogilates brand started to grow. First of all, I didn't even know it was a brand because I was trying to make Oh Gorgeous a brand. And it was on Facebook when the fans were like, Hey, can you make a Blogilates shirt? We want to buy it. And I was like, what? That's literally my screen name. That's so weird. And then when I made a shirt and I put it up there for them, and this was just a Forever 21 shirt with the screen printed Blogilates on it, it sold out like within a minute. And I was like, okay. And that's when Blogilates took over as the main brand. Mm. And then Oh Gorgeous Yoga Bags was just very slow selling in the background still. Mm. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it took a lot. I'm telling you, it took a long time for them to sell. So yeah. what made you think okay, I'm, I'm, I don't know if I can sell all of these bags, but I think they're good enough to be featured in a national magazine. I'm going to send them out and see what happens. Well, I thought they were really pretty and high end. And I felt like that was like newsworthy. <laughs> so I was like, someone should talk about it. <laughs> well, how did you even find the addresses? Like, how did you even know like where to send them? You just go in the magazine and you open up the magazine and there's like addresses in there and people's names and you just send it. <laughs> you just do it. And for me, the biggest risk was like, oh my gosh, like this bag cost me this much. I only have X number. So I hope this doesn't go to waste. And like, thank God somebody wrote about it. Right. Yeah, and so did you cool. Facebook friend the person who wrote about it? You know what? I did not. <laughs> oh my God. That's so weird. I did not. <laughs> but so, so one day an editor in shape decides without even telling you first, no, they didn't tell me, they didn't tell me. And back then I, I do think that one post actually led to like seven sales. And so with the seven sales, I was like, we're going big. We're going to fly to China and get in manufacturing and do this for real. And so, yeah, back in the day, that was how sales were gotten wow. <laughs> print. Wow. Yeah. So I want to fast forward to kind of where you are today, because I think that origin story is so crazy and beautiful and amazing. Now you operate under two brands, right? Blogilates and under Popflex, Mm -hmm. right? And Popflex is direct to consumer? Correct. And Blogilates is also in Target now? Correct. That's insane. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And that, that also wasn't really supposed to happen either. <laughs> Which yeah. part was not supposed uh, to happen? <laughs> the Target one, I think. And, and weirdly enough, the PopFlex brand wasn't even called PopFlex when it first started. It was called something else called Body Pop. And then some company in Korea decided to trademark the name. And so I had to change it to PopFlex in 2016. And so I, everything just like happened because I had to deal with certain stuff. Yeah. But yeah, no, I mean, Blogilates, okay, so here's the confusing part, I guess. So Blogilates is 
the YouTube channel name and the everything everywhere name. And one of our first like super viral products, it wasn't the yoga bag. Okay. It was, <laughs> it was like these train, like a beast, look like a beauty tank tops. It was back in like 2014, 2013, maybe actually no, probably 2012 when these neon colored motivational shirts were super in. Do you remember those? No, you don't. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> maybe it was on, on a different part of the internet. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, that was like the rage. And I made like water bottles that had my design on it. And it was crazy because in one month we would sell like 30,000 units of one bottle. What? And this was me like still not understanding what this was, but like, okay, cool. And we're shipping out of my parents' garage and everything. And this is under Blogilates. This is under Blogilates. Mm-hmm. Under Blogilates. But what happened was, is that graphic design is so easy to steal. And I was really just green printing on blanks. And so I started seeing a bunch of my design pop up on Etsy and then eventually on actually Target. (laughs) And, And that directly affected sales. So I saw my sales drop and I wasn't sure what to do, but at the same time, this was around the time that Lululemon was getting big and I was super into it because I was like, wow, these are like really pretty gym clothes. And so I was like, I want to do something like that. And so I slowly phased out of the motivational tanks and water bottles and was like, okay, I'm going to take on designing clothes, which I really have zero formal education in this at all. I like sketching and I know what I like and what I want, but I don't know how to make patterns or anything like that. And so I decided to find a manufacturer in downtown LA and try to get my first line of clothes done. And that was a complete disaster. It was terrible. Well, how was it a disaster? It was a disaster because... Again, I have no technical design experience. So I'm just trusting that this person is, I'm like, yeah, cool. I'm going to do extra small to extra large. Like we good, these colors, cool. And it comes back and I'm trying to price things at Lululemon prices. So I'm like, oh, they can do it. I can do it too. Not as high, but like kind of. And the fans retaliate. They're like, cause I went from selling $20 shirts now, like a $60 tank top or something. Mm-hmm. And they're like, you left us all behind. You don't even care about who brought you to where you are. And like, I remember crying on launch day of Body Pop and not only was the price range not good for the audience, the quality wasn't there. The sizing really was limited. It was only XS to XL because I didn't understand how to do plus size. And because of that, people thought I was anti-body positive, like all these things on launch day. And then of course, on top of that, later we find out I can't even use the name Body Pop. And so that was really, really hard. So that was probably 2014, 2015 or something like that. So it was 2014, 2015 when you launched this ill-fated <laughs> clothing yeah. line. Uh-huh. Was that when you would say that you went from being just blogilates, you know, fitness Pilates instructor to being a fashion designer? I think I tried being a fashion designer, but at the same time, it was more, everything was more content focused. Mm. Because really, I didn't stop making YouTube videos until like two years ago. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So you were still doing Pilates classes and, and Blogilates fitness classes online as of two years ago? Yeah. And at the end, feeling that hollowness again. Uh. Yeah. And like really hitting a point where I no longer... Now, look, I, I don't want to say that I don't like fitness or don't like Pilates. I love it. And it is still my rock, but I just no longer felt mentally challenged. Like I, how many ways can you teach how to do a crunch or a double leg lift? Like there was like, I just felt no more passion for that. And so most of my days, like 
we're 95% product development. And I really love that. And yeah, I love making content, but I hated making Pilates content because it was so the same mm. over and over and over again. And my felt like my brain was dying. And so I remember two summers ago, I was like, I want to show people what I actually do every day. And I'm not sure if people are going to like it, but this is just what I'm going to do. And I've seen a lot of creators try to pivot and change their brand and absolutely fail. Mm. But I also knew that I could no longer keep making fitness content. At the same time, other things were happening too. People were still tearing at my body. People were still saying stupid stuff like Cassie is spreading misinformation about fitness. And like the fitness industry is, is incredibly toxic as is the nutrition space, which also when you're in the wellness space, you just dabble into all of it. And not a day would go by without like tons of videos being made about me, tearing me down. And I didn't realize how unhealthy of an industry I was in until I left it. And I like rarely see a negative comment these days. And it's been so amazing. And so, yeah, two years ago was the last time I put up a fitness video. So just to kind of anchor this for people who are listening then in in or around like 2009, was that when you decided I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to go and look for factories in China to mass produce some type of product based upon the success of the bag being in shape? So 2010. 2010. Okay. So 2010, you see your bag in Shape Magazine and you say, this is the sign. Mm -hmm. I need to leave this horrible, toxic job Mm -hmm. that I didn't realize it would be like this. And we're going to do this properly. We're going to go to China and we're going to identify manufacturers. Is that when you decided I'm going to do sort of like these t-shirts and water bottles and things like that? Yeah. So after I got back from China, pretty much I didn't have a full-time job anymore. And I was teaching Pilates like 12 times Mm. a week, trying to make ends meet and ends didn't really meet. So, so then I moved back home to my parents. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So I moved back home and my parents were like, so are you going to go to like grad school now? Medical school. (laughs) But I'm like, instead like printing shirts and stuff like that. And where am I going with this? I don't even remember. Well, so I I guess that while you're doing this, so many things are happening at the same time. That's what's hard. And also Blogilates is continuing to grow as a channel. Yes. Yes. And And that's happening at the same time. Okay. Yeah. Oh, the ball. Yeah. So the bags end up getting developed and shipping to my parents' house. So we're out of Boston now, but that was a disaster too, because, because one, there was like a strike at the port and I didn't know anything about ports and strikes and whatever. And people had already pre-ordered their bags. Oh my God. And, and it was Christmas time. And then I didn't know what to do. So I ended up like writing the congressman and like telling him to help me. And I don't know if it helped, but eventually my bags got released right before Christmas and we ended up sending it. And then I find out that when the customers get it, the factory just like switched out the zipper on me and it was like a bad zipper. Like everything, like I, like I learned so many things throughout this process. And I actually don't think this is the question you originally asked, but I'm just, it's bringing back a lot of challenges that I, that I went through. And yet at no point did you decide I'm going to stop doing this and do something different? No. No. Mm -hmm. And at this point, were you continuing to do Blogilates, the the fitness channel and being, you know, a fitness person 
as a way to facilitate continued growth in your business, mm-hmm. you know, the product line, or were you doing it simply because you loved being Blogilates, you loved the channel, you loved the community? Hmm. Let's see, because I wasn't making money from the channel. Right. And at this time, ads weren't a thing, uh, brand deals weren't really a thing. And honestly, by me teaching Pilates and having a channel, it discredited me in many ways. Magazines didn't want to write about me because they were like, well, what celebrities do you teach? Like, so it wasn't like doing favors in the professional fitness industry, even though I was certified in a real Pilates instructor, I suppose I kept it going because it did show growth and it was fun. And I was like making friends with people online. And in the very beginning, I met up with, you know, you didn't call them followers back then, but like fans of your Facebook page, friends on your page, whatever. I met up with them. We just like hung out and like went to lunch. And so it was a great way to just meet people. And it was beautiful in the beginning when it's a much smaller community, but as you grow, more people find out about you who don't understand you and want to twist the words and things that you're doing. And it becomes a much scarier place where you end up just wanting to hide in the public. But yeah, in the beginning, it, I, I kept it going because it was fun. Mm. Community can be a powerful tool. It can make things fun, as Cassie describes. It can inspire change, big change, in not just one person's life, but in many people's lives. It can push us out of comfort levels, facilitate enormous growth, and at bottom, prove that we are, in fact, never alone. But communities, especially the larger they grow, can, as Cassie alludes to, grow a bit unwieldy. As an undisputed leader, but also a woman who clearly wears her heart on her sleeve, Cassie talks about how she sometimes struggles with defining her worth independent from the world she's built. That is one of the things that I think happens in any situation where you become vulnerable. I think it becomes magnified when you become vulnerable to millions and millions Mm -hmm. of people who somehow think they're entitled to not just have an opinion about your life and everything that you're doing, but then to voice that opinion or even share that opinion to their millions and millions of followers or, you know, listeners and things like that. From what I am hearing from you, part of the joy that you derive from the things that you do is community building. That's, I think that's just like a natural instinct for you from when you were a little kid and you're like, Hey, we need to turn this club into something bigger than it is. You know, like I think that's just something that, that makes you very happy is kind of confirming to yourself, but also confirming to other people. We're not alone. Like we're in this together. We're, we're going to get through this together. I know that you've spoken a lot about the team that you've built around you at PopFlex and Blogilates and what they've grown to mean to you. I know the kind of relationship that you have with your husband and business partner, what that has done for you in not just your business growth, but also your personal growth and your emotional growth. But I think, you know, there's a flip side to that community. There's a flip side to being that vulnerable, which is, yes, you are vulnerable. And there's also this tendency, again, to, you know, internalize the feedback that you may get, sometimes the good ones, but also sometimes the bad ones. How do you guard against saying, I'm not going to allow my self-worth to be measured by this immense feedback that I'm getting from the outside? Because 
it's very tempting to do it when it's good. Mm-hmm. And, but when you do that, then it becomes much harder to not do it when it's bad. I still struggle with that. I allow the comments, especially the negative ones, to determine my entire self-worth. And I've tried to do so much learning around this topic and why I let that happen. And I still struggle with it. And I unfortunately am a very sensitive person and it's a double-edged sword because it allows me to tap into my feelings and really express it. And I think that's why the blog, when I was able to write, really touched a lot of people because I got in there. But then it it just... It just makes me curl up and want to die oh. when, when you get a negative comment and when it's about your body and the things you're already insecure about and you already know about it and now there's videos being made about it. Like that's just a whole nother level. And I really just hadn't been, I didn't realize how bad I had been dealing with it until I got out of it just a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the negative comments haven't stopped entirely, right? On the fitness side, they have because I stopped making, mm. I stopped feeding them the things that they needed to make content about. Right. And so that stopped. These days, it's it's much lighter in terms of someone may not like a design or whatever, like mm. that, whatever. Like, it's weird because with that kind of stuff, I'm just, I just feel a lot more confident. I'm like, well, too bad if you don't like it. Like, I like it. <laughs> but like when it's my body, it's like, okay, I, I know, like I'm still working on my lower belly. Like, you know, mm-hmm. so it's harder. But what has gotten to me really recently was, it wasn't about the design. It was when she uncopied my score for the, and I, and in the development of that score a year and a half before, I already told my husband, I said, if there's going to be one thing that Shein's going to take, it's going to be this one. I already knew that because it was a very unique design that I hadn't seen before. And so, of course, it happens like a few months after the Squirt launches. And I talk about it. And for the first time, everyone was very supportive. There were a couple of negative things here and there. But the second time I talked about it, it really ticked people off. And I don't know why. And this literally was just like a few weeks ago. And people were just saying, pretty much victim blaming, saying like, well, you put your design out there, so what do you expect? Or like, oh, this uh, this skirt is so ugly. I've seen it before. I used to wear this when I was six. And like all this kind of stuff, which like, and then people trying to like throw around legal terms and be like, well, you should have just copyrighted it and then you wouldn't be in this position. And like all these things just really made me feel stupid. And like, even though I know that I know, like the situation that I'm in and I'm doing a lot of work behind the scenes that I'm not sharing, like all of it just really made me feel, I don't know, just really low and dumb. And Mm. yeah, I don't know. It was really, and I, I, it was a dark time. And like, thank you, Joanne, for like sending those beautiful flowers with your note. It's still on my desk, but yeah, it was probably the first time when I felt super invalidated. And then people were also sticking up for Shein, which I was like, what are you even saying? So it was just a really weird thing where I think maybe my post got outside of my audience. Mm. And I think those were the comments that I was seeing. And then when I started reading the comments under news outlets talking about my situation, that's when it got really, really bad. Mm. Yeah. I have a lot of questions on this topic, so I'm going to try and organize them in a way so that I don't forget them. Okay, okay. But the first one is, you said that you felt dumb Mm -hmm. and that you felt low 
by these people who you know, know about as little about your situation and the work that you put into this and quite presumably the, the legal ramifications of it as well, because I know you have a team of lawyers, as possible. And yet somehow they had the power to make you feel dumb, mm. which is shocking to me. It's like so hard to hear that. But what I thought is so interesting is that you said that when someone comes at you for the design, they're in, you're impervious to that level of criticism. You're like, no, I'm pretty confident. Like, I know what I'm doing here. Yeah. I know that my design is good. And if it if you don't like it, that's too bad. Mm-hmm. Can you describe for us, like, what is it that makes you so susceptible to that level of criticism on the one hand and yet completely impervious on the other? I mean... Law is not my profession and I'm still learning and it's actually been really interesting. I really like learning about the ins and out of fashion law, which are extremely gray (laughs) and I'm having a good time learning. Unfortunately, not happy about paying for it and doing it on this side of things, but it's a place that I'm not confident in because I don't have the knowledge. And so when people say stuff, I'm like, Oh, uh, could I have done that? Like, I don't know. And so like, it's, it's just like the way they say it that just makes me feel stupid. Like, oh, well, you should have done that and stuff like that. And, and you know, I end up looking it up and sometimes maybe there's one person that might be right, but most 90% of the time, like these people who aren't lawyers have no idea what they're talking about. And so it just comes from a place of, I'm not an expert in it. And so it initially just feels like someone's just slapping me and I just need to figure out what I'm doing. Mm. Yeah. I mean, you may not be an expert in the law. And I, ha- you know, I had a very similar situation to you happen a month and a half ago. And I am a lawyer and I have been practicing for many, many, many years. And I also have a team of lawyers. Mm. But I felt the same level of dumbness mm. that you describe. Like, That's crazy. Yeah. No, I, I felt it. I got one comment that gaslit me and that said, well, you can't copyright this. You shouldn't be upset by this. The fact that your book was essentially ripped off, you know, and, and somebody was trying to profit off of it. And here's the thing, you know, you say that you're not an expert in the law. I don't think that's relevant because I am an expert in the law, presumably. And I still felt as stupid as what you just described when one person came at me, let alone a whole bunch of news people and all that stuff. The thing is that you are an expert in a lot of different things, which is, you know, the amount of time it took to design that squirt. The fact that you already knew before it even happened that Shine was going to steal it or mm-hmm. Sheehan was going to steal it, right? And that all, already that speaks to this level of expertise that I can't even understand. I don't know what, what made it so special that it was going to be stolen, that you would know in advance that this is going to be the one that they steal. It also speaks to how you market that squirt because from what I understand, they don't just steal the design of the clothing. They also steal the marketing of the clothing, how you pose the picture, like, you know, what that all looks like, you know, what the post looks like, the social media behind Mm -hmm. it. So you also know the time that it took to develop and implement that design. You also know what it takes to actually have the folks in the manufacturer, wherever that's located, to understand your design to a degree that it comes out exactly the way that you want it. You have also learned through, it sounds like over a decade, how to make sure you size these appropriately so that it's as inclusive as it needs to be. These are all things that you don't just learn with a snap of the fingers, right? So this is the kind of expert expertise that people in the comments, like you said, that's, that there's all this stuff like going on behind the scenes, right? So how come that doesn't like 
come to fore when you're confronting these people who are gaslighting you and saying, no, 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 no. I have over a decade of experience doing what I'm doing. And I don't care about the legal implications. The fact is someone is stealing all of that work, all of my heart that I put into this. I mean, it, it, it should back me up and make me feel good. But it, it, in the moment, you're just like, I am a worthless nothing and you just want to die. But I need to work on bringing that up and letting it support me in these darker moments because I just, it doesn't even come into play at all. Mm. You just keep reading it and you just keep dissolving pretty much. Yeah. From a business perspective, you know, and not the legal perspective, I would love your input on this from a business perspective. Cause I certainly have thoughts as a creative person, you know, like what are you to do to guard against these types of things happening? Because whether it's Shein today, it's going to be another company tomorrow. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you've got a good relationship with Target. So hopefully they'll lay off a little I think, bit. I think, yeah, that was a long time ago. Yeah. So like maybe that's like water under the bridge. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, and now with the advent of AI and the utility of that in just about every path of industry that you can imagine from mm-hmm. a creative design standpoint to, you know, the actual execution of that design and the manufacturing and all of that stuff stuff, the product development of it to the marketing of it, even like, you know, AI could just create the exact same image. They could even put your face in it at this point, even if you're not in the photograph, Mm -hmm. like how does a business person like yourself guard against the dilution of your brand and ultimately the hit to your bottom line with all of these things sort of looming out there? So one thing that these copycats cannot copycat is the community the fandom that you have, the soul that the brand has. And they'll also never be able to catch up because they're always following and I'm pioneering. So that's something that I try to tell myself to make myself feel better. Um, But of course I I lose all of this vision when I'm reading the comments (laughs) and the negative stuff. So that's one thing. However, what you're saying about the AIs and all this, it's, it's problematic. Actually, just last week, I found the pirouette score on Amazon, two different vendors, oh, wow. not Shein. At first I was like, oh, maybe Shein like sold the unsold units to whatever. Maybe it's actually them on Amazon. No, different. Because every time this happens, I actually buy the score just to like examine what it is that they're doing. And these are all different vendors. Mm. And so luckily I was able to take down one because they literally stole our pictures too. And that's a very clear uh, copyright violation. Yeah. So took that down. There's another one that just popped up that we're trying to deal with. But interestingly enough, I was talking to the legal team last week and I was like, you guys, I mean, Lululemon and free people, I see all their dupes on Amazon. If they're not doing anything about it, then should I even be trying as a small company of like 22 people and they've like hundreds of thousands of workers? And one of the lawyers actually said something really interesting and I really loved it. She said, well, if they're going to dupe you anyway, why don't you dupe yourself? And I was like, huh, that's really interesting because then I could battle them where it hurts, which is like, if you're going to make a score for $20 and I'll make a score for $19.99 and like play that way. And so I've actually been thinking about it. And Sam has very different opinions about this because of course, 100% the Blogilates, I mean, sorry, the PopFlex brand should be everything that I focus my attention on, which I do and I love it. But now I have like this like side revenge project that I want to do where I want to like, <laughs> like a, a side brand and call it something else and like just put it up on Amazon and just like 
you know, make sure all the vendors just pay for what they did to me. And so that was a really interesting thought that I, I hadn't even thought of. And I love that so much because yeah, I think, I think people are going to keep duping me. It's just going to happen. And I have a lot of new designs coming out that I'm trying to get a design patent on and try to protect myself in that way. But that really only works for American companies. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter when it's overseas. So I might just have to, I might have to do that. But at the same time, I'm only one person and I cannot really be running the brand that actually matters and then having a playful dupe brand on the side because I might get my attention will be diverted in the wrong place because I'm trying to play games. And so I need to be really careful about that too. I want to be mindful of your time and, but I have so many other questions to ask, but I do want to kind of close this with asking something that has been on my mind, like ever since you started talking for this episode, (laughs) which is, do you think that if someone wanted to do what you did, but do it today, Mm -hmm. in today's landscape, YouTube is not what it was in 2009 when you started. It was YouTube.com back then, Mm -hmm. you know, nobody uses the yellow pages anymore. And presumably there may not even be companies small and willing to do the kinds of things that that one Chinese person did, which is sure, I'll sew up 300 bags and do them over when I discover that I did them wrong, you know? There's like so many other little things that I feel speak to a time that doesn't exist anymore. And I guess my fear is as an entrepreneur, and I imagine that there are a lot of people who are listening who may want to go into entrepreneurship says, yeah, we just live in a totally different world and one that doesn't have space for people like me. My dreams can't thrive in the current environment when we have things like AI and when we have the level of competition that has kind of cropped up when every fourth person thinks that they're a YouTube creator, you know, and TikTok and all sorts of other things. Do you think that there's still space for people who have the kind of passion and and strength in their dreams that you did when you started out? A hundred percent yes. And I actually think it's easier because there may not be yellow pages, but there's Alibaba.com and you can just (laughs) find manufacturers who are willing to do 20 units, 50 units. There's also been proven paths of success. Like you can see, like for me, I didn't have any Asian fashion designer to look up to and see exactly how she did and talk about her feelings the whole time (laughs) as she was doing it. Like I just like kind of did it. And now you have people you can follow and even like reach out to if you have to. Brands that are super tiny can go viral on TikTok and it could just change their business overnight when it took me like, what, three or four years to sell out those 300 units of yoga bags. Like it really took, a, I'm telling you, it took a long I, time. I think that's like my favorite thing of the story. <laughs> <laughs> so I think anyone who feels like, oh my gosh, there's so much competition, like, yeah, but don't go out there doing something that's already been done. Be unique, pioneer, and then you have zero competition. And so I think... If anyone has an idea, literally just go for it and expect to make mistakes along the way. Expect to fail along the way because the failure is what builds your character and it is the true teacher in life, in business, in relationships, in everything. I mean, if you really do believe in your project, whatever that is, you will get there because you do not want to see yourself fail. You want to get to that finish line. And I just find the whole journey is just like... There's been so many ups and downs and the downs are very, very painful, but it makes the rewards so much better. So true. Yeah. What's next for Blogilates, for PopFlex, for you? 
Ooh, okay. Well, Blog Lotties is continuing to expand at Target, which is really exciting. Yes, you should all buy all the things at Target <laughs> as Blog especially her protein powders. They're delicious. Oh my gosh, mm-hmm. thank you. So that's really cool. And working with a retailer has been just a whole nother thing that I'm still trying to understand. But I'm very grateful that people can walk into a store and see Bloglotties on the shelf. And and again, this wasn't supposed to be the brand that was supposed to get into Target. I, I don't know, but it, it's there and it's affordable. So that's awesome. Poplex, man, I am just so excited about everything we're getting into totally new categories that I am developing for right now. And it's just so fun learning about things that you have no idea about because there's just so much potential and we're growing our team and the people that are joining have just been, man, like just thinking back to how things were back in like 2018, pretty much I was about to shut down all of it blog poplicks, everything, because I was being eaten alive from the inside, toxic team, from the outside, body shaming videos, and I just didn't want to go anymore, and I really thought I was not cut out to do this, but luckily I didn't give up, and now I have a team that is the exact opposite of what that was, and it just makes going to work so much fun, and the reason why I wrote that thread the other day is because I was just having a moment of gratefulness, just thinking about what I have now and what I used to go through, and mm-hmm. I'm just like, so happy. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything else that you want to share with our community here? Anything else? I mean, you don't have to. A lot of times people ask me that. I'm like, no, I'm good. (laughs) (laughs) But I want to make sure that if there is something else that you want to say that you have that platform to do it. I mean, I really enjoyed our conversation today. And oh my God, I'm getting emotional again. Like, (laughs) I'm just really grateful for our friendship. And uh, I feel like over the past few years, like, I've actually had a lot of social anxiety because I think I was just hanging around the wrong people. Uh. And then going to that dinner with you and Anthony was so fun. And and I said at the top of this interview that it kind of lifted me. And I'm just so happy that our friendship has continued to grow and blossom over these past several months. And I'm just, I'm grateful for you. I'm really grateful for you. And I'm just so happy that we're friends. Well, I'm very, very (laughs) grateful to and for you. And I'm, yeah, very moved. And I still, like I said, I know I've said this like a bazillion times, so it's probably getting old, but I literally... Like sometimes like, I do not know why she wanted to meet me at the summit and why she was searching out literally when you were like, I really wanted to meet you. And I was like, oh, she's just saying that because she's nice. <laughs> like how, why would the blog want to m- meet me or talk to me? But regardless of that, I'm forever grateful. And I think it's so cool that you guys live by us now. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. Yes, same foods. And I can't wait to celebrate many, many, many more milestones and continue to wear all of your clothes. Because as I said in a comment earlier, they are the most flattering. So for all of you, if you don't know, you got to check out Cassie's clothes. I have gotten so many compliments on the times that when I'm wearing a sports bra like I am right now. That blanket jacket that I take everywhere now. Oh, you, uh, you wear it all the time. I literally wear it all the time. People like recognize me from afar, like when they see me with it and they're, they're like, oh, there she is. She's come in with that blanket on her body. I have gotten so many compliments on that. So definitely check it out. Where else can people find you? 
Blogilates everywhere. I'm so lucky that I have that handle because it's such an unusual name. But yeah, everywhere, even on threads. I don't even know if threads is going to continue to survive, but I'm still there. (laughs) Yeah. Post in vertical videos like a few times a week. Awesome. My design process. Well, thank you so much, Cassie, for coming by. I am very grateful for this conversation and I'm really excited to eat. Yeah, me too. If you had to, could you identify the secret to Cassie's success in just one word? After listening to her story, I saw an entire wheel of things that catapulted her. Her passion, vulnerability, leadership, drive, and even the pride she ultimately found in her heritage. But if I had to name the hub of that wheel, the thing that binds all the spokes together and makes sure the wheel keeps turning forward however hard it gets, I'd have to say it was heart. Thanks everyone for joining me for another episode of Are You Ready? with Joanne Molinaro. If you enjoyed this episode or this conversation, do me a favor and hit that subscribe button below, leave a comment or a rating. Most importantly, tell me who you want to hear from next. If you found this conversation particularly enjoyable or inspiring, it would mean so much to me if you shared this episode with your friends, your colleagues, your family, or anyone else you think might also enjoy this conversation. In the meantime, until next week, I hope you have a wonderful and lovely day.